0: Genesis 35 Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with them came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him whenever he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside of Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Patamaran, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at that place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, um, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son son Benoni. But his father named him Benjamin so rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is bethlehem over her tomb jacob set up a pillar and to this day that pillar marks rachel's tomb israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond migdal edgar while israel was living in that region reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine Bilhah, and israel heard of it jacob had 12 sons the sons of leah reuben the firstborn of jacob Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Patamaran. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him.
1: Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibamah, the, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibeon the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Naboath, and Ada bore Esau, Eliphaz, Basmath bore Rul, and holibama bore Jaush, Je- Jaelam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his daughter, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Ruel the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Rul, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the wives of ah- Hobama, the daughter of Anah, the d- daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jerush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Taman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Rul, Esau's sons, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shama, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Rul in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of a, of a Holy Bama, Esau's wife, the chiefs jeush Jalim, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Holy Bama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir the, Hor, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobel, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, Dishon. These are the chiefs of the. Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Temna. These are the sons of Shobul, Alvin, Menahath, Abel, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai and Ana. He is the Ana who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the, the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Ana: and Dishon and Holibama, the daughter of Ena. These are the sons of Dishon, Himden, Eshbon, Ithran, and Sheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavon, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the, Hor- of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son, Jabab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. Jabab died, and Husham of the land of the Temnites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his his city being Avith, Hadad died, and Semla of Mazrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Shal of Reboth of the Ephrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Balhanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Balhanan, the son of Akbor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Paul. His wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Medrid daughter of Mes- 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 Mesahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places. By their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Je- Je- Jetheth, Holibama, Ella, Penon, Kanaz, Taman, Mizbar, Mibzar, Magdil, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling, dwelling places and the land of their possession. Those of you um, who have not been here we've been we've been walking through Genesis for what eight months now since the beginning of the year we started walking through Genesis we walked through creation we saw um, Noah and, and the flood we, in Genesis 12 we were introduced to to Abraham and there's this family line and we saw everything change at that point where the first 11 chapters we saw God, interacting a lot with, with the, the world as a whole, with, um, with creation, with, we, even with Noah. We are talking about the, the entire world. But then in Genesis 12, things zoomed in on, on this one family line. And we've been following this family line ever since. Abraham, his son Isaac, Isaac, his son Jacob. And we've been looking at Jacob's story specifically for about two months now. And we're really at the point that we're wrapping this up We're wrapping up um, Jacob's story this morning. He'll be mentioned by name a couple more times, um, or next coming, um, the upcoming weeks, maybe months. Um, But he's really not the focus of the story after this morning. Um, This morning, we're really wrapping up an entire generation. We we saw that Rebecca's nurse Deborah um, dies. Um, Rachel, Jacob's wife, um, dies in childbirth. Um, Isaac dies. We see. The family, whole family line of Esau, just in that genealogy. We're, we're moving on to the, to the offspring of Jacob. Moving on specifically to Joseph um, will become the next person we really look at. But as, as we look at J, Jacob's life specifically, as we now are, are at the bookends of that, the very end of his story, I think there's a lot that we can look back on and, and just be like, wow, look what God did in his life. And I, I feel like Abraham's story gets, gets a lot of the spotlight in Genesis, and and as it should. But this, as we've been walking through Jacob's story, it's just hit me harder than than anything else so far. Just, I feel like it's hit home for me in many ways as God has um, been been working on Jacob, as we've seen that I've felt God working in me in a lot of these ways as well. So. If, again, if you haven't been here before, I, I think three times in the couple of years that I've been preaching have I actually had three defined points in a sermon. So this is not common, but I have them. So I'm kind of excited about that. But the first one is this. The, fir- the first point is this. God graciously fulfills his promises to Jacob. God graciously fulfills his promises to Jacob. Here in Genesis 35, what... Sidney read for us in this passage, we saw God fulfill multiple promises that he had made to Jacob. Very specific promises. If you remember back to a month ago, at least now, we looked at Genesis 28, where God first um, interacted with Jacob. At least the first recording that we have of, of God and Jacob having an interaction. Jacob had grown up in Isaac's home. He had he had no we heard of God. He, he knew of Isaac's relationship with God, but we had never we had never previously seen any kind of relationship with God for Jacob. But there's there's a lot of we saw a lot of negatives in Jacob. We saw his his stealing. We saw his deceit. We saw his character. But then in Genesis 28, things changed a little bit. I'm gonna read for us just to make sure, uh, just to remind us Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Um, just to remind us of these promises that God had made to Jacob. I'm going to read 10 through 22. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones to the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on, on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven." For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took out the stone he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way, I will go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and the stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a tenth to you. So remember, this is happened when Jacob is fleeing from his brother. He's, he's fleeing the land of his father's. Um, and then notice what those promises specifically in verses 14 and 15. God says, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread from the east to the, to the west, to the north, to the south. And your offspring, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed. And I will keep you where you go and will bring you back to this land. Clearly makes him these promises. But then Jacob's response, we talked about this back when we first ran this passage, that Jacob's response to these promises were really just kind of a bargain with God. Well, you can only be my God. I'm only going to acknowledge you as God if you do all, these, if you do all those things. Like, if you, if you don't do those, then I'm not going to call you my God. And we see this far, this less than perfect response from Jacob to God. But the crazy thing is that God fulfills each one of those promises and we see that all here in Genesis 35. Every single one. He says, your, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. We only see the first, the first little bit of this when we go as Genesis 35, we see that the, the family of Jacob, we see all of his sons listed off there at the end of 35 where, where it gives off all 12 sons. God says, Also in Genesis 28, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Genesis 35, 3, Jacob says, Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God, who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. See, Jacob, since Genesis 28, Jacob has experienced this. He's experienced that God has been with him. God has never left him. Genesis 28, God also promised, He says, I will bring you back to this land. Now in Genesis 35 to 27, it says, And Jacob came to his father's house, to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kirath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Just as he had promised, God brought back Jacob to this land. Sure, it was many years later but he brought him back just as he promised. And I see, what we see in this passage is this the kind of bookend of Jacob's story, but it's also this display of how faithful God had been to him since day one. We see a faithful God being displayed here. And I see, like, it's easy to see that here, but I think we miss that that's the same God, it's the same God that we have the privilege to know today. And a lot of people ask, well, how do you know God's going to heal? How do you know God's going to keep his promises? From cover to cover in the Bible, over and over and over and over again, we see God making promises, God keeping promises, over and over and over again. And on days that we might lose sight of this, on, on days that we might be easy to forget this, we, can find, we see this in the Word. We see reminders over and over again of God's faithfulness, God's graciousness, just how wonderful He is. But, but al- along these same lines, as we see a faithful God all through Genesis 35, I want to take just a moment also to, to look at what Jacob's response was to this. What was Jacob's response to a faithful God? Verses 6 and 7 in Genesis 35 says, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled his brother. So you see, God appears to him. This is where God at first revealed himself to Jacob. And he goes back and he builds an altar there. He stops. He, he takes time to acknowledge this place that has been so important in his life. He goes to this place and takes time to remember how faithful God had been. He was remembering, he was celebrating, he was he was worshiping in this place because of how faithful God had been. You see until until recently, we, there's not been a whole lot worth emulating in the life of Jacob. The last couple weeks, um, we, we've seen the, the story kind of shift a little bit where God has really begun to work in Jacob. But there hasn't been a whole lot worth emulating. But church, Jacob, his, his taking time to stop, remember the faithfulness of his God, and take time in that moment to remember, to celebrate, to worship, that is worth emulating. That is worth following after. I think that we're really good at remembering the things that are important to us. I think for those of you who are, are are married, there's probably pictures of of your wedding displayed in your house somewhere. For those of you who are sports fans, you probably have trophies from Little League or trophies from something, even the particip- participation trophies, somewhere in your house. I still have them somewhere. I, I've been all over ETSU's campus in various meetings, um, and almost every per- office I go into, the, the diploma or diplomas are hanging all over the walls because um, it's something we're proud of. It's something that we want people to know. It's something we want to be identified with. And I don't, I don't, my, my, my purpose is not to knock any of those things, but the, the things that are important to us We want to remember. We take time to remember. We intentionally set things up so we remember how important they are. And I'm not suggesting that we go build altars to remember God's faithfulness. But at the same time, what might it be like? What might it look like for us to intentionally take time, set aside time to remember God's faithfulness to us? Do you take time to do this? To take time to celebrate, or is, that, or is that just a Sunday thing? Are we so busy that it becomes just a Sunday thing? Because I, I know my own life, how, how busy, how crazy, how hectic it is constantly moving on to the next thing, constantly running from this to that, to work, to back home, to this appointment, to that appointment. Our lives, our lives are full of schedules. Schedules are full. And I feel like too often, in that little time we do have, we spend asking God to do this, to do that. I know that's often what I find my, in my own life. But I believe that if we would really take time, not just to ask God to do this and that, which which we should do, but if we would take time to also just see his faithfulness, to remind ourselves of his faithfulness, I think that we would be not only led to worship more, but that we would be given even more confidence as we pray because we would be consistently remembering what he has done. And so for each one of you I I don't, I don't know everyone's story. I don't know everyone's life. I don't I don't know all the details. Some of you I know more than others. But as we look back, what are those things we can say, "Yes, I can remember, I want to remember how faithful God was at that time." Well, what are those moments for you? Because even if you struggle to see anything else, even if there's nothing else that you can think of, maybe it's just like, I don't see anything that I can be thankful for. Just the fact that we are alive today, sitting here safe in this building, being able to open up the, the words of a holy God, like, there are things that we can be thankful for. And for those of us who profess Jesus for salvation, as we trust in Him alone to save. Like, we have so many reasons to celebrate, so many reasons to be thankful, to be a part of the family of God. And as we think of what we can celebrate, a way to look back and remember what God has done. Like, communion is a perfect picture of this, something that we do to look back and say, look what Jesus has done. Look how he was broken. Look how his blood was poured out. Like, it's a, this representation as we look back and say, this is what Jesus has done. It's a reminder of how we can look back upon the faithfulness of God. Because God, God graciously fulfilled all of his promises to Jacob. And Jacob remembered that. Jacob took time to remind himself of that. And we should as well. Number two. God graciously graciously transforms Jacob's identity. God graciously transforms Jacob's identity. Let me read verses 9 through 12 again here here in 35. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from... Padan Aram, and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall cover your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So as you read this, try, try to imagine yourself as, as Jacob here. I mean, for the, if you've not been with us over the last couple of months, we've, we've spent a lot of time seeing Jacob as a liar, as a, as a deceiver. We saw him directly lie to his father, lie to his brother, to steal. We saw him, him, him trick his, his uncle. We saw him put conditions on God. But imagine being Jacob. Imagine being Jacob. You know all that is true of yourself. You know what you've done. You know your behavior. You know your sin. You know your greed. So why would God continue to pursue you? Why would God continue to faithfully fulfill these promises? Because if I, if I Kayla, if I am in charge, this isn't the guy I want on my team. I don't want Jacob. But what we see in these verses here, I think, is just this picture of unconditional grace. Unconditional grace. It's not judging Jacob on his past sins, but purely on what God is planning to do in his life. So, back in Genesis 32, we saw that Jacob had this seemingly strange wrestling match in the middle of the night um with god and through this process we see in verse 28 it says then he which was the angel said your name shall no longer be called jacob but israel for you have striven with god and prevailed so when we looked at it that week we didn't get a whole lot we didn't get super deep into it but it's the same thing that happened with jacob's grandfather with abraham right he was he was abram but now he was abraham But Jacob's new name, being called Israel, was a a physical thing to represent what God had done in him. Because God had transformed him through this night-long wrestling match that they had. God had transformed Jacob. As God had broken him down, physically broken him down, emotionally broken him down, spiritually broken him down. But as we saw when we looked at that, it wasn't just God breaking him down, but it was God teaching him to cling to the only thing that could satisfy, which was God. What we see is God gives him a new name. God says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob, but Israel. We see God saying, "Like your family. You. You are mine. You're going to be my people. You're not going to be identified by all that past but you're going to be identified by me. There is nothing, there is nothing that Jacob could have done to cause this, to to earn this. Because this was God stepping in and saying, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you. Your past sin, the past sin in your life is not what is going to define you. Your past failures, it wasn't, that's not going to define you. Your past experiences, the trauma in your life, whatever you've experienced, that is not going to define you. God says, I'm going to do that. Your name is no longer Jacob, it is going to be Israel. Because God radically, radically transforms Jacob, transforms him, and shows his commitment to Jacob. And I, I mentioned this earlier, but the God of Genesis 35 is the same God today. The same God that, that we worship. The same God that transforms sinners. The same God that pursues sinners. That even as we try to run away, God does not stop pursuing. Because in His unconditional love, unconditional grace, God relentlessly pursues. God sends his own son so that we can be forgiven. So our sins are not held against us. That's something that we, you, me, did not deserve. But as God gives his son, as God gives Jesus, he's saying, I'm not done with you. Look at Jesus. Your bad choices, your sin, how broken you are, how sinful you are, that is not what is defining you but trust in my son. Trust in Jesus, that he alone can forgive and you will be saved. Church, just as Jacob was transformed, this is Jacob was given a new identity. This is the same that is true for followers of Jesus. This is the same thing. No longer sinners, but called Righteous. No longer lost, but found. No longer broken, but redeemed. I love that we did Ephesians 2, because no longer dead, but alive. Because none of us have the ability to to earn any of those declarations, any of those truths. We don't earn that. We can't get that, apart from Jesus. Righteous, found, redeemed, alive. Those are identities that we have Because of Jesus. (coughs) I think unconditional grace is something that we really struggle. uh, I struggle to fully understand. It's easy to say, yes, I I believe that. Yes, I understand that. But unconditional grace. Unconditional. Try to imagine your best day and your worst day just to be very general imagine your best day is the day that you wake up in the morning you wake up you spend time with the lord you spend time you open up your bible you spend your quiet time whatever you want to call it you 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 go to work with a, with a servant heart you want to you look for opportunities to share the gospel with your coworkers or with your fellow students you come home from work come home from school you go to church that night You come home, you finish the day reading another, maybe you read a John Piper book or something, I don't know. But then imagine the opposite. Imagine a a really bad day. Imagine a day that you wake up late, you sleep through your alarm. You cuss out every person on the road on the way to work because you're just angry no one can drive. You're just frustrated all day at work. You're just mad all day. You come home from work and it's like I'm done with today. I'm going to Netflix. I'm going to I'm going to go and just play video games. You just check out. Maybe it's then that all sorts of other sins, all sorts of other temptations come, come just flooding your way, and you and you go to sleep, knowing you failed once again. It is so easy, so easy to think that God loves us more on the first day. It is so easy to think that God somehow loves us more because we obeyed. That God somehow loves us more because that we did this, this, and this. Listen, loving sinners is something that God chooses to do. Loving us, even when we are sinners, is something God chooses to do. Because if he did not choose to pursue sinners and love with unconditional love, if he did not choose to do that, there's nothing that we could do to earn that love. Because if God loved us more on day one, on that good day, then it's no longer grace. It's something we did. It's something we earned. Because, like there's nothing, nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us less. Look at Jacob. For 90% of Jacob's story, all we saw was his sin. We saw his wickedness, his deceit. But in those moments, God did not stop pursuing him then. God continued to pursue Jacob. God did not love him less then. Yeah, we see Jacob obeying now. We see him following after God. But the whole time was a faithful God showing unconditional grace, continuing to pursue Jacob, what this means is that even when we sin, even when we backslide, even when we fall back into sin, even when, when our sin is so apparent, God's love does not end. Even when our eyes, our hearts might be drawn to lust, God is still loving. Even when our hands, and our, our hearts are drawn to greed, God still loves, like unconditional grace. It's hard to fathom. The world doesn't work this way. But God unconditionally loves, pursues sinners. And understanding this changes. because It changes us because when we fully understand what unconditional love means, when we fall into sin, when we fail, we don't have to run, we don't have to hide, we don't have to retreat, we we can run to God, knowing that He is merciful, knowing that He loves us, knowing that in unconditional love He redeems. Like we we've got to hear this. We know, must understand this. To further, I want, I want to show you one more thing. You don't have to flip there; uh, it'll be up on the screen. I want to look at this. Is an Exodus three. Exodus three. This is God coming to Moses in the burning bush, um, a story that that, that many of you might know. I'm going to read just verses 4 through 6 and Genesis 3. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals. This is God telling Moses, I'm the God of those guys. The guys you know about. I am their God. And if there was ever a time, if there was ever a time that God was going to call Jacob by his new name, there was ever a time he was going to say, I'm the God of Israel. I'm the God of the guy I transformed. I'm the God of that new guy who I remade. If there was ever a time to say that, it would have been now. It would have been As God was saying, all those, those are my guys. But no, God says, I'm the God of Jacob. Not just the the God that he, the guy he changed. He said, I'm the God of Jacob. I'm the God of the guy that I then did amazing things through. I am the God of the guy that I transformed. But I am the God of him when he was a broken sinner, just as much as I'm his God now that he is redeemed. Like, it's easy not to see this. Because God is God in our worst times and in our best times. God is God no matter what. Because God is not waiting on us just to stop sinning. And then he'll say, okay, now I'm going to be God. Now I'm going to show you what I'm like. No. Even when we were sinners, God says, I sent my son Jesus for you. The unconditional love, the unconditional grace in the life of Jacob, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's astounding. But it's the same God that we worship today. It's the same God that we sing to today. It's the same God that we pray to today. It's the same God that loves us today. It's the same God that pursues sinners like you and me. And it seems like a radical thing this unconditional grace. It seems like a radical thing. But this is who God is. I think it seems radical because the world doesn't work this way. The world doesn't work this way. Because if you would have said back when we first started Jacob's story, we said, man, this is who God's going to say, that's my guy. I am his God. And we're like, wait, God, are are you sure? Like, look at his life. But now we see unconditional grace all over it. But also, what we see is that while God graciously transforms him, God is also graciously calling Jacob to something that is so much bigger, so much greater than Jacob. Look back at 35, 11 through 12. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and will give the land to your offspring after you. You see, the grace of God, the transformation of God, it comes with a calling too. For Isaac, he was saying, "Now go multiply, I'm giving you this land." Back in 28, we saw that he said, I'm, "I promise, I'm going to do, I'm going to bless the nations through your family." But God sends Jacob, sends this guy that he has transformed, that he has really taught to fully trust him. God then sends him out with the same promises that he gave to Isaac and to Abraham. to bless the nations. And we've seen from the get-go this was God's plan, that his glory would go to the nations, that his, he would be glorified from the nations. Back in Genesis 12, when God first came to Abraham, we saw this. He said, through you, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, all the peoples will be blessed. And we know that God accomplishes this. Revelation 7, 9. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb God is going to be glorified God is going to be praised by all the nations all the peoples and that plan began long before Jacob but we see that everything that God is doing even in Jacob is all according to this plan. It's all for something so much bigger than Jacob. And here's the thing as God saves us, as God shows grace to us, as God transforms us, He also calls us. That's number three for taking notes. But God graciously calls us. I'm not talking like, oh, I'm cold to serve in this way or in that way in the church. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. But we are shown grace. We are saved. We are transformed. To be cold is something that is so much bigger than just us. We're saved for God's glory among the nations. Look at, many of us know this, but look at Genesis 28. Because th- this is where it all hinges where Jesus some of his last words on earth he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the very end of the age and some of Jesus' last words he says go make disciples Go, teach people what it means to follow me. Teach people what it looks like to live a life that is following after me, is learning more about me, that is submitting to me. And how amazing is it? How awesome is it that God includes you and I in this plan? Paul gets this. I know I'm jumping around, but Romans 1, 4 through 6, is Paul is introducing this letter to the Romans. He says, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations see we we've been given grace god shows his grace to sinners not because of that person we're somehow special in ourselves because it's all about us that's not it god shows his grace to sinners so that his glory might be known throughout all the world because this Understanding this flies in the face of any type of theology or teaching that says that God only wants us just to be happy and healthy and wealthy and, and if anything's going wrong, and it's just the sin in our lives. That's not it. We didn't receive grace so that we could always be happy or that we could always be comfortable. We didn't receive grace so we could just go to church on Sunday mornings. We didn't receive grace so that we could just live comfortably with material things. We received grace so that God would be glorified as we take his gospel wherever he sends us. The grace we've been shown, the salvation we've been given, is not about us. It's about something so much greater. And once we see this, I think once we see this, everything really changes. Our our motive to work changes As we see our workplace as an opportunity to to live out a calling that God has given us, as we see our workplace as an opportunity for ministry, our our passions begin to change because we see what matters and what doesn't. Our Our desire for worldly comfort changes as we realize that's not what it's about. It's a beautiful thing that God would call you and me. How is God calling you? How is God sending you? How is God seeking to work through you? It's a question to ask this week. We've been following the life of Jacob for two months now. As I said earlier, we're, we're really, we're kind of wrapping this up. We're, we're, we're moving on to Jacob's children. But what we, as we see, as we look at the end of this story, the, we see, the, we see the, again, the, the bookends of Jacob's life, of, of Esau's life, as we saw his, his story wrapped up as well. But what we see as we look back and what was a life that was defined by deceit and by sin has now been radically transformed. And God says, no, no, no. This is my life person this is my Jacob this is a Jacob that I am renaming I am transforming I'm giving a brand new name God graciously fulfills his promises to Jacob God graciously transforms him and gives him a new name God graciously calls Jacob to something so much bigger than himself a plan that has been for all of eternity And as I look at Jacob's life, just to see that just the magnitude of grace, that no one is outside of the reach of God's grace. There's no one outside of the grasp of God's grace. No one who's outside of these walls. No one who's inside of these walls. No one who's here today. If you hear nothing else, if you hear nothing else this morning, Hear that, that God's grace is enough. It's enough to forgive the worst of sinners. It's enough to overcome the worst of addictions. It's enough to crack the hardest of hearts. It's enough to welcome in the weariest one of us. Hear the magnitude of God's grace. Unconditional grace that we don't earn. Unconditional grace that loves us as we are and then seeks to transform us. Make us more like Jesus. Day in and day out. So as, as I pray, as I pray, as I ask you to join me in prayer and just pray that God would at a brand new level show you what His grace is even for the first time, that God would show you the magnitude of his love for sinners, the magnitude of his grace, and the links that he has gone to to make us a part of his family. Let's pray.